coming up. Um, you know, the January 6th videos, we saw a glimpse of them and then they disappeared. What's going on at Fox News? I'll give you my thoughts. I want to expose the excessive punishment being meted out to January 6th defendants by comparing their cases to a BLM rioter case. And the House GOP has new documents on the Biden crime family. I think they should release them. And basically, they're going to show how the Bidens, as a family, have made millions of dollars selling influence to China. Hey, if you're uh, either listening to the podcast or watching it, make sure you hit the subscribe button on Apple or Google, Spotify, or if you're watching on video, hit the subscribe button on Rumble. Uh, This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. America needs this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. I want to talk about the mystery of um, the January 6th footage, but I want to put it in a, a broader context of what's going on with Fox News Uh, and specifically what's going on with Fox News regarding this January 6th video. You remember that Kevin McCarthy gave the video. Now, Kevin McCarthy says, I didn't really give the video. I made it available. Well, okay, he made it available to Tucker Carlson. And I think the expectation was uh, not just of Kevin McCarthy, but a lot of people who had uh, pushed Kevin McCarthy to release this video they um, they wanted to see a lot of the stuff that was that was held back by the January 6th committee. Let's remember the January 6th committee put out a thoroughly cherry-picked narrative. So all the videos showing stuff that goes against the January 6th committee was not released. They just, uh, and in fact, if you look further at what happened with the January 6th committee, Liz Cheney even blocked the, uh, the subcommittees that were looking at things like intelligence failures, the uh, refusal to act on proper intelligence. The Capitol Police knew things, but they didn't do anything about them. And Liz Cheney was like, don't, don't release any of this. Why? Because we've just got to make Trump the sole and exclusive villain. So you can see the kind of propaganda that that committee, uh, ultimately, um, it became a propaganda factory. Now, there is new information coming out on January 6th, but it's not coming out from Tucker or from Fox News. I had yesterday um, Joseph McBride, the attorney representing January 6th defendants. He talked about this uh, document showing the Capitol Police had a sort of a, a game plan. And interestingly, this game plan not only anticipated a lot of things that were going to happen, but talked about having um, plants and infiltrators in the crowd, not just by the way, people in the crowd to calm things down, actually people in the crowd to join the crowd and if necessary, instigate things and make chants and point to the Capitol and join people in going into the Capitol. So this goes beyond, by the way, the idea of the FBI having somebody inside the Proud Boys or the FBI having a plant at the three percenters or the Oath Keepers. We're now talking about the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police also uh, taking on this role of you know, putting on pro-America, back the blue type of hats. Why? Because they want to be seen as indistinguishable from the Trumpsters. And therefore, think of it, if they do bad stuff, who's it going to be blamed on? The Trumpsters. 
Now, let's turn to Fox News. Uh, Tucker Carlson on day one released some clips and they were like, wow, look at all this stuff coming out about the shaman guy. Look at all this stuff about Josh Hawley jogging across the corridor. Look at all this stuff about Brian Sicknick. And then nothing. The second day when we're supposed scheduled to be a day of more footage, nothing. And then you're like, well, it takes time to go through the stuff. What if it'll surely come out in the next day or the next day or the day after that or this week? Nothing. And it looks like that's it. It looks like the, I won't say the fix is in, but I will, it looks like somebody dropped the hatchet on uh, Tucker Carlson. And uh, I don't know of any other way to look at this. I mean, obviously, one way to look at this is that Tucker reviewed the 44,000 hours of footage and realized that, you know what, by and large, I found just three clips and that's it. That's all I got. Tucker isn't really saying. Uh, but the other possibility, which I give it, this is the 99% possibility, is after the first day. And re let's remember, Chuck Schumer went on the Senate floor, Rupert Murdoch, I demand that you stop Tucker Carlson. And then guess what? Somebody stopped Tucker Carlson. And who would have the power to do that? No, it's not the, um, it's not the, um, uh, it's not even Suzanne uh, Scott, the um, CEO of Fox News. Uh, these are orders that are coming from above. And that would mean most likely either Lachlan Murdoch, the son of Rupert Murdoch, who is sort of the de facto guy that people at Fox report to, or Rupert Murdoch himself. Rupert Murdoch, we know, is feuding with Trump. How do we know this? Because some very interestingly, uh, and this all seemed to happen simultaneously, all the organs under Rupert Murdoch's control, of which I named three, the editorial page of the New York Post, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, and the Fox News Channel all simultaneously turned against Trump. So it's not as if you just have guys at these at these outlets, they've all made independent decisions. No, again, uh, this is a corporate decision from the highest level. So I feel a little bad for Tucker because I think Tucker is a brave guy and I think he would have liked to have run with the footage. Now, why doesn't he just come forward and say, hey, listen, they blocked me. I can't uh, release the footage. And the answer is somebody writes his paychecks or somebody writes the paychecks of everybody at Fox. So what happens is they not only silence these guys, but they force them into a pretense. And the pretense is that there's no news there or they've made an independent news judgment not to cover it. In other words, they cannot admit the truth. And this is really, I think, the big problem with Fox and really the big problem with some of the early email releases and so on that came out through the Dominion suit with Fox is you get a little window into the fact that there are some people at Fox, not everybody, but some people who are kind of laughing and deriding uh, not only Trump, but the Trumpsters, the MAGA crowd. And yet at the same time, they're very aware that they need the MAGA crowd. They need the Trumpsters to keep Fox News in the kind of massive, massively profitable, high ratings cable network that it is. And so you've got a very duplicitous two-step in which they try to give the MAGA people just enough while at the same time satisfying the feuds and vendettas that apparently the Murdoch family is now a part of. I want to highlight the harshness to the point of just absurdity of the January 6th prosecutions. By the way, uh, there is word now that the DOJ may be indicting a whole bunch of new people 
Uh, they've indicted about a thousand. They say they might have another thousand. I mean, this would be a little bit strange that here we are in 2023, what, two and a quarter years past January 6, 2021, and what you're identifying new defendants now. This is a little bit, but it shows you they're out to cast the widest of wide nets. And uh, when you look at the two cases that I'm focusing on, you just see how petty and arbitrary uh, and even outlandish their approach is. So my first exhibit involves a January 6th defendant who is now accused of violating his travel conditions by going to CPAC. Now, let's let's look at this. The guy is, um, uh, his name is Gabriel Garcia. He is uh, facing uh, six charges, including two felonies, and he lives in South Florida. And uh, as sometimes happens when you are um, under indictment awaiting trial and um, and you are not uh, confined but allowed to go home, your travel is restricted, which means that you need to get permission when you travel. Now, all of this is a little bit eerily familiar to me because I was under similar restrictions. Um, I had a probation officer and typically if I wanted to travel uh, to give a speech, for example, I would have to get clearance and get permission. I have to tell him why I'm going. And if I said, well, I'm, it's part of the way I make my living, I could get permission uh, to do it. Well, now this guy, Gabriel Garcia, sought permission from the court. He said, I need to travel to Washington, D.C. to do two things. One, I want to observe the January 6th trials, which are going on with the Proud Boys. Uh, and the other is I want to consult with my own defense counsel uh, in D.C. pending my own trial. And these are perfectly legitimate reasons for wanting to go to Washington, D.C. And this permission was, in fact, granted. But now, according to the DOJ, uh, this fellow Gabriel Garcia violated his travel conditions. Why? Because according to the government in a court filing, they say that he did go to the Proud Boys trial for a few hours on March 3rd, but he spent the rest of the day at CPAC, which was occurring across the river in suburban uh, Maryland. And... Um, and uh, the court filing has some social media posts which show Garcia socializing at CPAC. And, um, and uh, Garcia's point is, and I think here Garcia is right, so? In other words, Garcia said, I want permission to go to Washington, D.C. to do two things. I want to meet with my attorney, and he did. And I want to attend the Proud Boys trial, and he did. And then while he was in D.C., he went, I guess, for several hours to CPAC. Now, there's absolutely nothing that I'm aware of in these travel restrictions that says that if you do the things that you said you were going to do, you can't go out to lunch, meet with friends, go to CPAC, do whatever the heck you want to do. You are a free person. Obviously, you need permission to make the trip. And he had legitimate reasons for doing it. And he carried out those legitimate reasons. In my case, for example, I was given permission. I was actually let out of the confinement center to go to a hearing in New York. And when I went to the hearing, which would be typically in the morning, I would then go that evening over to Fox News and appear on the Megyn Kelly show. So what is the, the prosecution going to say? Well, he's violating the terms of his, uh, he's, he's being let out of confinement to go to his hearing. What's he doing on the Megyn Kelly show? The answer is it's none of your business. So in other words, it, it is not the case. This guy has not been convicted of anything. 
He has trials coming up. He's operating under limited uh, release conditions. He's satisfying those release conditions, and yet they're trying to now somehow act like there's some kind of violation. Frankly, I can see none, and I don't think this is likely to go anywhere unless the judge is just a complete jackass, which is, of course, not entirely outside the realm of probability. The other outrageous case, and I'll maybe talk in more detail about this separately, is this guy, Doug Mackey, who is accused of putting out anti-Hillary memes. Now, strictly speaking, this is not a January 6th case. This is a DOJ case. But this guy put out a meme and it was a joke. And the joke was, hey, listen, guys, when you vote for Hillary, this was in 2016, vote by phone. Now, there's obviously no way to vote by phone. This was an obvious joke. And by the way, the left makes this kind of joke all the time. There's a kind of old joke about, hey, listen, you know, tell people of the opposing party to make sure they show up to vote on Wednesday. Of course, election day is on Tuesday. And so this this joke has been around for at least a couple of decades. In any event, who gets prosecuted for putting out memes? Well, apparently the answer is Doug Mackey. The DOJ is accusing him of, quote, violating the Ku Klux Klan Act. Now, the Ku Klux Klan Act goes back decades, and it was, it was kind of an act that basically said that it was, um, it was to prevent Klansmen from terrorizing black Americans into not voting, intimidating them from voting. Well, this guy isn't doing that. In fact, the DOJ hasn't been able to produce one single person who was sort of, who, who says, hey, listen, I was thinking of voting, but you know, I saw this guy's memes and I tried to vote by phone and then I didn't vote. So in other words, they can't produce a single so-called victim of this stunt. I mean, have we reached a point in America where you can't even do memes and jokes and quips? Because if you do, you're going to be prosecuted for it. One of the ways that we can uh, gauge whether justice is being done is by looking to see if justice is being applied equally. And equally means that if you have two guys who do similar or roughly the same thing, they are charged and prosecuted in the same way and they receive sort of the same penalty or a similar penalty. Yesterday, I went on Joe Walsh's uh, podcast. In fact, it's out today. You can see it. You can hear it on Spotify or um, or uh, watch it on YouTube. It was actually a very lively and respectful conversation of a kind that really doesn't happen a whole lot uh, today. But we were talking about January 6th, and Joe was pressing me, well, don't, don't you agree, Dinesh, it was wrong for people to go inside the Capitol? And I go, yeah, it was. And I said that, look, there are people who committed misdemeanors. They went in there. They didn't mean to um, break the law, but they did break the law. Uh, they didn't do any vandalism. They were completely peaceful and they left shortly thereafter. Well, those people should get a misdemeanor, which basically means you get a warning or some community service. But you're not going to take a 75-year-old uh, grandmother. I'm giving you an actual case. In fact, I had Pamela Hemphill on the show and locked them up for 60 days because they walked into the Capitol for 10 minutes. This is just downright outrageous. And you know it's outrageous because it doesn't happen to anyone else. If you look at the massive riots that emerged in Portland in the aftermath of George Floyd, we're now talking about from summer of 2020, uh, prosecutors dismissed 
a substantial number. I mean, they dismissed outright more than one third of the cases. Think about it. These are cases that have, in many cases, felony charges. Four defendants were charged with assaulting uh, federal officers. They just dismissed the charges. They didn't even bring charges against them. And um, this was, by the way, for the actions outside the Mark O. Hatfield uh, U.S. courthouse. And then let's zoom into a single case to see what happens when they do bring charges. So this is the Biden DOJ, um, the same DOJ that is now arresting Trump supporters, you know, uh, as I say, two and a quarter years later, 26 months later, uh, you're looking at uh, excessive prison sentences. And so let's run a little bit of a comparison. Here's a guy, his name is Dakota, D-A-K-O-T-A-H, Horton, arrested in August of 2020 for assault of a federal police officer. So I'm picking a fairly serious case. What happened? This was outside the Mark Hatfield courthouse. Officers were trying to disperse the crowd. It says, quote, violent opportunists proceeded to attack law enforcement officers by throwing hard objects, glass bottles, and explosive devices. This guy approaches a cop who was clearly marked. He was wearing actually police uniform uh, and he uh, is accused of striking this guy repeatedly with a baseball bat. Wow. Now, um, he was charged and the charge is assault uh, with a deadly weapon against a police officer and that carries 20 years in prison. So far, so good. So did this guy spend, you know, months uh, or even years in prison awaiting a trial? No, he's actually released from custody in October 2020. So here we go. He's arrested in August, September, October. He's out. In fact, I'm looking at the release uh, and I'm looking to see if it has a date. Yes, October 28, 2020. So two and a half months after his arrest, he is released. Now, he uh, comes up for trial. He makes a plea deal. Uh, a plea deal on a charge that has 20 years in prison. So did he get 10 years, 15 years? No, as it turns out, he got 24 months. 24 months in prison for a violent assault with a deadly weapon against a police officer. Uh, that's what the judge gives him. Uh, and again, from the documents, defendant doesn't have a criminal history. He's performed well on pre-trial release, meaning he didn't commit any more crimes. And he, quote, accepted responsibility and expressed remorse. And for this... Uh, the DOJ proposes and the judge agrees, two years in prison. Now, just contrast that with this guy named Julian Cater. Julian Cater is the guy who sprayed Brian Sicknick with bear spray. Now, no one is even alleging that that bear spray killed Brian Sicknick. It was actually part of a scuffle between officers and the crowd. Uh, and this guy argues, Julian Cater, that I was just trying to basically protect myself. And I, yes, he did spray the bear spray. And I'm not saying again that he shouldn't be prosecuted. But again, he gets 90 months. So 90 months in prison for bear spray versus 24 months in prison for assaulting an officer with a deadly weapon. If that doesn't make sense to you, it shouldn't. It doesn't make sense to anybody. It is shows the deeply inequitable application of law. And that's one definition of injustice. It's not simply did you break the law. If you're speeding uh, and, and you get a $100 ticket and I'm doing the same thing on the same highway or a different highway and I'm, I'm given one year in prison, then there's something wrong, not with me or with you, but with the law. 
or at least with the application, with the enforcement of law. And that's the problem here with the Biden DOJ. They're showing flagrant disregard for equality of justice under the law. The House Republicans have been uh, pressuring the Biden Treasury Department to release information about, well, the Biden family racket, the dealings of Biden with uh, foreign governments, the inflows of cash to the Biden family, not just to Hunter Biden, but to other uh, Bidens. And all of this is now in possession of the Treasury. But look at it. This is sort of like saying that the information on Don Corleone is now in the possession of the Corleone family business, which is to say the White House uh, and the Treasury Department are like part of Biden's family business right now. And not surprisingly, Janet Yellen, the Treasury has been blocking, stalling, stonewalling, not replying to letters and so on. But slowly, through the first threat and then the use of subpoenas, According to Congressman James Comer, they are getting the records. Now, uh, James Comer was on um, two shows. He was on Hannity and he was on Maria Bartiromo. And he put out some really tantalizing um, information about what he's getting and what he's reviewing. Now, we haven't seen any of it yet, so we're going based upon what Representative Comer is saying but what he's saying sounds to me very juicy. First of all, he says he's gotten bank records from one of the 13 banks used by the Biden criminal operation. Quote, these bank records prove that the Bidens did receive money through a shell company from the Chinese Communist Party, and we're just going to keep following the money. Wow. He's talking about direct payments from the Chinese, from people associated with the Chinese Communist Party, a shell company, which is a kind of a, a dummy company, a pass-through company. The Chinese Communist Party operates it, but it has a different name. It's not called the CCP or CCP Inc. But nevertheless, and, and remember, this is information from one of 13 banks. Imagine what's going to happen when the, more information comes forward and all of this is, is put together. Now, in a separate interview... Uh, Comer uh, reveals that he has identified a $3 million wire that was sent to one of Hunter Biden's associates, a guy named John Rob Walker. So this is weeks after Biden leaves the vice presidency in 2017. So let's see. Biden exits the stage. He's obviously done some favors for somebody or his name has been used to generate favors for somebody. And money is now flowing to the Bidens. But it's it seems like it's going to Hunter Biden, but it's actually not. Um this is Comer talking to Hannity. He says records from Bank of America show that in March of 2017, this fellow Walker gets a $3 million wire transfer from two individuals with ties to the Chinese Communist Party, which he then divvied up among multiple Biden family members. So, you know, in this controversy, people often say, well, it's all about Hunter Biden. And, you know, there's sometimes presidents have wayward sons who do all kinds of stuff. And sure, he was trying to peddle the Biden family name. No, James Biden is in on it. Frank Biden is in on it. And there's another Biden. So here's Comer. He says, 
the Walker account started transferring money into three different Biden family member accounts, including a new Biden family member that's never before been identified as someone involved in the influence peddling scheme. So it looks like, and this is kind of just as it was with the Corleone family, everybody is sort of brought into it. If you're not a bag man, it's kind of like, you know, one guy is the assassin, another guy is the getaway driver, a third guy is just simply an informant, a fourth guy is supposed to set the whole thing up. And the Bidens operate like this. They're all crooks. This is the point. With, of course, Joe Biden being the head crook. And Comer says, and I mentioned this point a moment ago, this was called just the first wire that we've actually been able to obtain bank records on. There are many, many more. Many, many more what? Many, many more wires. And then Comer sums it up, I think, uh, very well. He says, quote, the media calls it a Hunter Biden operation, a Hunter Biden investigation. He goes, no. Quote, this is an investigation of Joe Biden. There are more family members involved in this than just the president's son. And whatever they've said in the media, oh, this was for business. We can't, I'm still quoting Comer, we can't identify any business. It appears it went into their personal account. So the money is essentially a payoff, a bribe, or a quid pro quo, call it what you will. We have a guy in the White House who has taken a lot of money. Think about it. The guy has four homes, four luxury homes. And how do you afford that on a government salary? By the way, the same question could be asked about Hillary Clinton. How do you afford a palatial lifestyle on a government salary? And the answer is you don't. Or to put it somewhat differently, you do. But it's on a salary provided by the Chinese government. You might uh, recall a couple of weeks ago, I talked about this uh, Cochrane Review. Cochrane is a uh, journal that, and an institution that puts out uh, medical research, medical studies. And the Cochrane Review was done by a whole bunch of prominent researchers, uh, including a fellow, the lead author was a man named Tom Jefferson. And it was about the efficacy of, quote, physical interventions, but the real focus, of course, was face masks. And it was on the effectiveness of these face masks in stopping the transmission of COVID. And the review concludes that wearing masks probably makes little or no difference to COVID or influenza or similar uh, illness transmissions. And um, here's Tom Jefferson, the lead author, quote, there is just no evidence that they, meaning masks, make any difference full stop, end quote. Now, this was, well, fighting words and fighting words, especially because it comes from a team of researchers putting out uh, based on a extensive examination of data and published in a medical journal and a medical library that is considered authoritative. And so it produces, no surprise, a kind of freak out on the left and specifically at the New York Times, 
where a columnist named Zainab Tufeki. <laughs> now, you might think, Zainab Tufeki, is this some kind of a prominent researcher? No, this individual has no experience, but is basically a ranter. Uh, and Zainab Tufeki attacks Tom Jefferson. In fact, doesn't attack the other researchers, kind of singles out this guy because he's the guy who, who is responsible for the incriminating quote. The quote is, there's just no evidence that the masks make any difference full stop. Boom. And so the New York Times publishes this vituperative attack on this guy. And, and it normally it should have been like, okay, fine, you've got some left-wing kook who's screaming out there. But no, apparently Cochrane uh, got intimidated or Cochrane got um, spooked or Cochrane decided to, it's time to uh, backpedal a little bit. And so this woman named Carla Soares Weiser, <laughs> Carla Soares Weiser, editor-in-chief of the Cochrane Library, she immediately publishes a statement on the website saying that there were, that at least she doesn't say the study was, was inaccurate or misleading, but she says, quote, that the commentators on the study, people who are, who are uh, dis disseminating the study and commenting on it made, quote, inaccurate and misleading claims about it. And the wording in the summary was, quote, open to misinterpretation for which we apologize. So this is kind of interesting, open to misinterpretation, now implying that the study was faulty and not being precise enough and saying things that could be misinterpreted. Well, what is the misinterpretation? This wasn't specified. Was, was Carla Soares Weiser pointing to other sources and saying, we uh, actually think that there's evidence that masks really work well? No, none of that. This was nothing more than a kind of apology for putting out the study. And uh, Tom Jefferson, the lead author, now has weighed in and basically said, first of all, he was given no notice. He goes that he just uh, looks and sees that, that his study with others is is somewhat repudiated uh, on the website. He says, quote, it was upsetting. Cochrane has thrown its own researchers under the bus again. He goes on to say that this is something where the editor-in-chief... Uh, who is normally ethically obliged to consult with the authors of the study to look at what the, cri the criticisms are and decide if some course of action is necessary. None of this is done. Quote, in this instance, Soares Weiser, the editor, has gone outside the normal channels and made decisions without any consultation with the authors of the review. It is unacceptable. So um, this fellow Tom Jefferson says, I will now contact the New York Times about the article where Tufeki used her platform to attack my credibility. She has no track record of publishing original research on acute respiratory illnesses. And it appears that if she doesn't like what's in the review, it's open season on the scientists. The authors have consulted with each other and they've decided that they are in no way backing down from the study. The study is completely sound. Quote, this is Jefferson, we are the copyright holders of the review, so we decide what goes in or out of the review. We do not change our reviews on the basis of what the media wants. And then he makes a point that is worth noting with all medical journals and really all serious journals of any kind. He says, quote, I think Soros Weiser made a colossal mistake. It sends the message that Cochrane, the institution and the journal can be pressured by reporters to change their views. It sets a dangerous precedent. This all seems, of course, completely obvious. 
And apparently Cochrane is guilty of this kind of thing before. There's one other time where they put out a study on a different type of vaccine. Apparently this upset the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which uh, is a big promoter of pretty much all kinds of, vac- of vaccines. And evidently uh, the Gates Foundation gives money to Cochrane as an institution. So Cochrane backpedaled on that study, which apparently led to the resignation of four of its board members. So Cochrane, it turns out these guys, they're, they're kind of good at what they do, but they have no backbone. They're invertebrates. And when they're challenged in kind of the public media, they don't understand that they need to hold firm. If they re- really respect the work that they're putting out, if they want other people to take it seriously, they've got to show a little more toughness in dealing with uh, ideologically motivated attacks from the left. Debbie and I started eating better this year, and we're on the road to losing some weight, but one of the foods we don't seem to get enough of, and it's a requirement, are veggies. Well, what better way to get all your fruits and veggies than by taking Balance of Nature? Balance of Nature is sourced from 31 whole fruits and vegetables. You'll get maximum nutrition with their star product, which is this fruits and veggies in a capsule. So easy. We not only look better, but we feel better too with lots of added energy that Balance of Nature gives us. Start your journey to better health right now. Take advantage of Balance of Nature's New Year's offer. $25 off plus free fiber and spice with your first preferred order of fruits and veggies when you use discount code AMERICA. This offer can end at any time, so act now. Call 800-246-8751. That's 800-246-8751. Or go to balanceofnature.com. Use discount code AMERICA. Over the uh, last several months, we have seen a number of vicious attacks, not just um, uh, vandalism, but firebombing, massive destruction of property against pregnancy resource centers. And what are the pregnancy resource centers? They're pro-life organizations that not only counsel uh, pregnant women and girls not to get abortions, but also provide them with alternatives, provide them with ways that they can carry the baby to term, put it up for adoption, uh, or if they're uh, if they lack resources, provide them with the resources so that they can actually support the child that they want to have. But maybe we're considering aborting because I can't afford a third kid, that sort of thing. This is what these pregnancy resource centers do. And in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, two things have been happening. The pregnancy resource centers have been getting attacked and in some cases attacked by groups that openly claim to be terrorist groups. There's a group called Jane's Revenge which um, says, quote, we demand the disbanding of all anti-choice establishments. And they're, they condone and take credit for attacks when they occur on pregnancy centers. So, so here you have a natural target for the FBI and the DOJ to go after. And yet it seems, oddly enough, that they, that they don't. Now, I saw that Merrick Garland was uh, before um, the, it was testifying before Congress, and he was asked about this. And he goes, oh, no, 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 we are completely equitable. He goes, we prosecute violations of the FACE Act. Now, the FACE Act is this uh, act, it's called the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances. It was passed in the Clinton years in the 1990s. And for about 25 years, nobody was even charged under the act. But then suddenly, uh, we saw that the Biden 
Biden DOJ is hauling up pro-lifers for violating the FACE Act. And these are typically pro-life protesters who are doing nothing more than standing outside these clinics and trying to get the attention of people going into them and saying, in effect, don't get an abortion. In one case, of course, the case of Mark Houck, which I've talked about, uh, Mark Houck got into a scuffle with one of the um, clinic so-called escorts, uh, somebody who works in a in an abortion uh, clinic. And uh, this guy wasn't actually escorting anybody. He was by himself. But he starts screaming at Mark Houck's, what, 10 or 12-year-old son. And Mark Houck pushes him. The guy sort of claims that he fell down. But he doesn't really claim he was injured in any serious way. Uh, and yet, here's Mark Houck facing years in prison for violating the FACE Act, for sort of disrupting access to abortion services. It goes before a jury and the jury throws it out. But but it shows the aggression with which the Biden DOJ is prosecuting um, violations of the FACE Act as they see it coming, if you will, from the right. But now let's turn to the violence unleashed by the left against these uh, pro-life uh, pregnancy centers. So there have been multiple uh, cases and, and almost no indictments. Well, there was one indictment in January, two guys a 27-year-old uh, Caleb Freestone and 23-year-old were uh, were arrested for trying to block um, people from entering uh, pro-life centers in Florida. And so there is this one prosecution, but it appears to be almost an isolated case. Uh, there was a, an attack on a Buffalo clinic last June. By the way, this was an attack that resulted in half a million dollars of physical damage. And even though the surveillance video of the clinic was was turned, the pregnancy center was turned over to the FBI, not a single arrest. There have been 80 pregnancy resource centers hit with vandalism, with attacks, with threats. On May 8th of last year, a pro-life public policy group in Madison, Wisconsin was firebombed. Uh, and again, shortly after that attack, James Revenge put out a communique basically saying, look, see, uh, in effect, claiming credit or claiming a responsibility and saying that this kind of thing needs to go on to protect abortion rights. And this is not just happening at the level of the um, of activism on the street, but you now have also pregnancy centers that are being blocked evidently by Google. So um, Letitia James um, basically uh, called out on Google and said to Google, you should not include, when people are searching out pregnancy, what to do about a pregnancy, don't list these pregnancy centers. Don't list the pro-life centers. Um, and uh, Google's union, called Alphabet Workers Union, was also pressuring the tech giant to remove pro-life centers from search results and navigation. If you go search now, uh, say, I'm pregnant, what should I do on Google? You'll see that among right at the top of, you get Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood. So Google is manipulating the search results to promote Planned Parenthood. Now, Google denies it's doing anything sort of fishy or anything suspect. They say, well, we're, we're kind of we're, we're being neutral and fair in the way that we expose the search results. But you can look and see uh, for yourself that that doesn't appear to be the case. And um, pro-lifers are saying across the country that when they complain to the FBI, uh, what are you doing about these, these attacks that are occurring on our centers? The FBI's answer is basically, we're working on it. Can we see the surveillance footage you're reviewing? No. Uh, so now it's not unusual for law enforcement to take this kind of 
cagey approach. Normally, they do it when they're going after bigger fish. They won't tell you about a small fry who's caught in a kind of uh, gang operation because they're trying to go after the higher ups. But that is not what's happening in this case. It's not as if the investigation is going slow because they're trying to get the people who are really organizing these attacks. It appears to be going slow because they're doing very little about it. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.